This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I don't know if you like to be out in nature, but I do. And one of my favorite spots in DuPage County to go walking is actually the uh, Herrick Lake Forest Preserve. And I have a favorite path that I normally take. It's about five miles. It starts off by the lake, goes around it, and then it winds around and turns and twists through lots of different topography. There are different forests, different kind of prairie areas, wetlands, and then eventually we get back to the lake. Now, last year, during one of my walks, as I was walking down the path like I normally did, I stopped because I noticed a group of Forest Preserve employees with lots of chainsaws and equipment, and I was curious as to what they were about. And so I stopped, and I started to watch them, and they started cutting down this brush in the area. Now, clearly, I didn't want to stay all day long, so I, I did go on my way and continue my walk. And I didn't think anything about it until about a month later when I was in the same area taking my five-mile walk. And I walked to that same area, and I noticed that that brush was gone. But more than that, I saw beyond the brush, a couple hundred yards away, this great vista of beauty, this beautiful landscape that I had never seen before. But it's not because it wasn't there. It was always there. It was just that this brush had obstructed my view of the beauty that was behind it. In a way, this is what the season of Lent is about for us as those who follow Jesus. Many of us have beheld a stunning landscape of the good news that God in Jesus is bringing wholeness and restoration to the world. But over time, what tends to happen is that this brush grows up, these shrubs and trees and vines and things that start to entangle us, whether those be sins, whether those be distractions, whether those be the ways that our heart tends to just orient itself toward other things than Jesus. And they tend to obstruct our view of who Jesus is one of the great gifts of the church is actually the church calendar because it gives us this way to orient our lives and our time around the life of Jesus. So we have a gift that every year we have a time to stop, to look, to see what brush has grown up around us that's obstructing our view of Jesus and inhibiting our ability to live into the reality of our union with him. In a way, this is almost like what the gospel reading this morning is like, too. It's a story of a man who came to see Jesus, but then he had this tangled mess of shrubs and trees and bushes and things that were keeping him from beholding the totality of the king who was in front of him. This is a story of encounter. It's a story of challenge. It's a story of misunderstanding, but it's also a story of new birth and new belief. It is the story of Nicodemus, but in many ways, it's also the story of each one of us. Now, before we jump into the actual story, I would like to look at a, at a passage in John chapter 1, the beginning of his gospel. So I encourage you to take out your copy of the scriptures. If you didn't bring one, there's a, a Bible in the pew racks there. And you could turn to page 886. 
John chapter 1, and this is actually part of the passage that we read on the last Sunday of each year. And the reason I know this is because as the, I, I didn't know this, but as pastoral residents, you get signed up for the last Sunday of the year when everybody else is kind of off doing their vacationing. So I, I, I've gotten to preach on this passage twice in the last couple of years. But John chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, this gives us a, a backdrop and a context for the story of Nicodemus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We've got these twin themes of birth and belief already highlighted in the beginning of John's gospel. These are going to be really important in our story here of Nicodemus. So after a really brief introduction in verse 1, this passage, this conversation, the encounter that Jesus has with Nicodemus, it really falls into two different sections. The first section is one about birth, new birth, and what that means, particularly that it's the way to enter the kingdom of God. And then the second half of the conversation talks about this new belief, this way to enter into the life of Jesus and in each of these, we're going to see how the brush, these shrubs and trees and things have grown up to obstruct the view of Nicodemus and maybe even how they obstruct our view of Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 1, we learn that Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews, and that he came to Jesus by night. We're going to talk about being a Pharisee and ruler of the Jews in just a few minutes, but this night idea is really interesting. And for a casual reader, we may not think that means anything, but John really likes these dualities. Light and dark is one of them. Light is the realm of God and His work. Darkness is the realm of evil and people who are far from them, and you can't have a foot in both of them. It's an either-or. And so it sets up this really interesting uh, story of, I wonder what's going to happen next. This man in the darkness is coming to encounter the light. What's going to happen? I want to read, and I bet you want to read too. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, right before this passage, there were many people who had believed in Jesus, believed in the sense that they saw all these wonderful things that Jesus was doing, and they were intrigued by him. And they wanted to know more, because this was, this was out of the ordinary. It was special. And Nicodemus was one of those. And he comes and he addresses Jesus as teacher, but notice that Jesus doesn't respond to what Nicodemus said. Jesus knows what's in Nicodemus's heart, and see, he jumps right to the heart of the matter. And so here's, we, here's where we have the first conversation, the first section dealing with new birth, 
as the way to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So twice, Jesus makes this kind of statement, started with, truly, truly, I say to you. This is, the the modern equivalent would be the teacher in the classroom saying, "You, you probably want to write this down. This is important. This may be important on future academic exercises. You want to remember this. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is clearly confused. If there were iPhones with emojis, he certainly would have. This would be the mind-blown one. This would be the, with the heads coming off, and it's just like, this is Nicodemus at this point. It's like, I don't get this. And it can be hard for us to understand, too, but fortunately, Jesus says this two times, and so let's look at, the, at what he says in these two times and how it can help us understand what he's meaning. So the first time he says, unless a person is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Well, we need to know what these two words are meaning. We need to know what kingdom of God means. We need to know what born again means. These are really, that everything hinges on the meaning of these two words. So God's kingdom is really God's rule and God's realm. It's his activity in the world. It's the realm that he, his territory, which really is the entire universe, but specifically the people of Israel, But there's more than just this present aspect of the kingdom of God. In the scriptures, the kingdom of God points to this time in the future when God will take this broken world that we're living in and he'll transform it and renew it, that he'll put everything to rights. Everything will be made right again. Justice will be part of the fabric of our human existence because we all know that now it's not. There will be vindication for his people, restoration for his people. Born again is a little hard for some of us, depending on our upbringing, because I know that in a room this size and from some of your faith backgrounds, that when you hear the word born again, there's a little bit of an allergic reaction to that. It's a word that's been taken and almost co-opted. It's become a political word. It's become a social word. There's baggage associated with it. But we need to reclaim this word. It's an important Bible word because it it strikes at the heart of our relationship with God and what it means to live in union with him. Again could be, or this, this word that's often translated again could also mean from above. In either case, I don't know that it matters all that much because what it's talking about is a new kind of birth. This is a new birth. It's a new thing that God is doing. There's a new beginning. A new birth would mean a new beginning. It would mean a new family. It would mean a new father. It would mean new life. A birth was really important for Jews. As we read in the passage in Romans, that it was 
birth that really put people into God's family because the lineage of Abraham was a big deal. That was the family through which God would reveal himself to the world. And so lineage and family was really important. And one of the reasons why Nicodemus was so confused. So Jesus tries again in verse 5 to clarify. Notice the subtle shift. It's not unless a person is born again, but it's unless a person is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So another phrase that's important. John and the early church writers clearly saw this as a reference to baptism. That it's in baptism that one is brought into this new life in God through Jesus in union with him. But even in the Old Testament, there was a picture of this in the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36. We're not going to turn there, but if you want to write it down to look at later, it's Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. And the prophet is talking about a time when God will cleanse his people with water. He'll cleanse them from their sins, and he will put his spirit in them. That they will have a new life transformed by the power of the spirit. This is what born again, new birth means. It's being transformed by the power of the Spirit and brought into, in a new way, the family of God, living in union with Him through Jesus. Now, there's a problem, though. And we see this problem starting in verses uh, 6 and 7. Jesus goes on to say, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So even, here's the problem, even if we could be reborn, and this, this was um, Nicodemus' whole issue here, I can't be born physically again. Even if he could, it wouldn't matter, though. Because God's new work is not being brought into a physical family, the physical lineage of Abraham. It's a spiritual rebirth in a new thing that he's doing. I've used the example before um, of the times that you were maybe in math class, think algebra, freshman year of high school. And you had to go up to the board. Maybe they don't do this anymore. I'm a, I am grew up in the late or early 90s. I was in high school. So you had to write on the board the problem, the solution to the problem. And then if you got it wrong, there was this supposedly comfortable thing that the teacher would say. say oh, okay, don't worry about it. Just, just try again. <laughs> Trying again does not help me in this moment. I don't need another try. I need a new orientation. I need something new to be done in me. I need new understanding in order to be able to do that problem. This is something similar. A new physical birth doesn't solve the problem. What we need is a spiritual rebirth, a bringing of ourselves into the very life of God. And that's what happens in Jesus. As we saw in, the, in chapter 1, in verse 13, that now we know God as Father in a new way, not through a physical birth, not through bloodlines. That, that's what it was saying in verse 13 in chapter 1. But through a new birth by the Holy Spirit. This is God's initiative. It's not our doing. 
And we become God's children because we're united in the very life of Jesus. Here's another mind-blown emoji moment. Think about Jesus' relationship to the Father. For eternity, he has been the Son of God. There's never a time that he wasn't. We are united with Jesus, so we share his sonship with the Father. What? But that's the wonder of this new birth. We share in Jesus' sonship with the Father that has existed through all eternity. So we can call Father, call, call, call God Father because we're brought into the very life of Jesus who calls God Father. Paul uses the words new creation, and he says when we are in Christ, you're united with him, we are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So this is hard for Nicodemus. He can't accept it. What are some of the the undergrowth, the things that are keeping him from understanding, that are clouding his picture, these trees that need to be cut down for him? If we look at his background that we learned about in chapter 1, I think it clusters into three primary things. And these three primary things are his pedigree, his performance, and his popularity. His pedigree was he was born into the family, the right family, the family of Abraham. The right ethnicity, he had the right education, he went to the right rabbi schools, he knew the right things. And as far as performance, he was a Pharisee. Now remember, the Pharisees were the guardians of the law. They practiced the law meticulously. And with good reason, because if you remember the story of Israel, it was a story of being exiled, being taken out of their land. Why were they exiled from their land? Well, because partly they didn't keep God's laws. They didn't act with justice for the orphans and the widows. They didn't do the things that were in the law, and so they were exiled. And so if, if I'm someone in that time, I would say, well, okay, let's really try to keep the law. And, and so performance could potentially keep Nicodemus away from encountering this new birth. If you've grown up in the church, sometimes we, you can get this idea that the Pharisees are, are really bad and the people didn't like them. Because it was always Jesus against the Pharisees, right? But the Pharisees were actually really popular with the people. They were viewed as someone who, is, who, who keeps the law well, and they're a model for us to follow. And this popularity could potentially get in the way of Nicodemus. You could even see it perhaps in his coming at night. He didn't want to come during the daytime so that people would see what he's doing, and they might look less favorably on him. So that's the brush that keeps Nicodemus away. What's the brush then, these things that are growing up, that might keep us from a clear picture of Jesus in our union with him. I think it's probably the same three things. Pedigree. You had the right family upbringing. You went to the right schools. You've got the right degree. You have the right job. You live in the right place, in the right house. You go to the right church. You went to the right seminary. And we can end up trusting in our pedigree rather than the new birth that Jesus offers. We also are tempted to trust in our performance. 
especially those of us who grew up maybe playing sports and had coaches that were judging us on performance. And so if you didn't perform, you're on the bench. And and we get these performance orientations that it, it matters more what we do than who we are. And so we do the right things, we're, a good, we're good people, we develop skills, we do good work, we get good grades, we volunteer, we're kind, and this can become a barrier to experiencing new birth. And finally, popularity. Some of us perhaps are more prone to this than others, but who doesn't like to be appreciated and esteemed by other people? We want to be liked. Some of us are people pleasers. We have this image that we want to keep up, and it matters to us a little bit too much what other people are thinking of us, which can stand in the way of us accepting this gift of a new birth that we're offered. So that's the first part of the conversation focused on new birth. The second part of the conversation is new belief as the way to enter eternal life. So Nicodemus makes a turn in the conversation now and says to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answers him, are you the teacher of Israel, yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, here it it is again, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. New belief is about receiving from a new authority. This past week, I was awarded the gift of serving DuPage County and the government by serving on a jury. And so for three days, I was in in and out of courtrooms and hearing lots of testimony and witnesses and seeing lots of evidence and audio recordings. And I started to get overwhelmed by the amount of evidence that I as a juror was, it was my responsibility to sift through it and I had to weigh it. And one of the breaks uh, that we had, I was kind of sitting in the cafeteria area during the lunch period and knowing that I had a sermon also to prepare for this past week, uh, I was thinking about this passage and I felt like sometimes we are the ones who are, we feel like we're weighing the evidence. That's what we do as humans. But actually, what if it's true that the evidence is the is what's weighing us. And I think that's a bit what's happening in this story. Because Nicodemus is trying to use his already existing framework and fit Jesus into that pre-existing framework. And guess what? That's not going to happen. That cannot work. Verses 12 and 13, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. We see here this earthly, heavenly divide, and Jesus as the Son of Man, this kind of strange term that describes both his humanity and his divinity. He's the one who bridges this. It's interesting, just the previous chapter, in chapter 2, Jesus cleansed the temple, and he stood in that place as the one who fulfills it. I think this is, actually, this, my body is the temple. He's fulfilling this place where earth and heaven meet. So he's uniquely positioned, then, to bring true knowledge and true life, because he's the one who has come from heaven to earth. 
Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, the natural person cannot understand the things of the Spirit because they're spiritually discerned. I had a professor in my apologetics class in seminary who always said this phrase, and it stuck with me. He would say, faith precedes reason, but faith does not stultify your reason. And of course, I had to go look up stultify, because who knows what that word means. <laughs> but it, just, it means it, it renders it useless. So faith is the thing that allows us to unlock the door and, and know fully, but it doesn't mean that reason is useless. Of course reason is important. God made us with minds to think and apprehend him with our minds as well. But it changes our posture from one of investigator to receiver. And then we come to the climax of this passage just as Moses was lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here's the phrase, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Believe can be confusing to us, perhaps, in our culture, because we use it in so many ways to mean so many things. We could say, I, I believe that our political problems would be solved if we just did this, or I believe the best way to deal with the immigration crisis is to do this, or this may be misguided, but I believe in the 2020 Cubs. <laughs> Spoken by a Brewers fan. So belief is not just intellectual assent. It's not just holding the right beliefs. It's not just intuition, but it's, it's a participation. And Father Matt did such a beautiful job a couple weeks ago of describing this in the Gospel of John when he says, believe in, it's believe into. It's participating in the very life of Jesus. And so it's not a me standing about saying, hmm, I wonder if Jesus is really who he says he is. No, it's a humble reception. That's what belief is. It's a trust. It's in humility saying, I receive who you are. You get to define who you are. I will receive everything to, the, whatever, to the, whatever degree I can, I will receive that. And I love the picture of this. When we come to communion every week, when we come instead of taking the bread, grasping at truth, grasping at knowledge of Jesus, we don't do that. We come with hands open and receive all that he is. The second word, eternal life. When we hear the word eternal, we automatically think of forever, right? And that, it, there is part of that word that does mean that. But in the Jewish mind, time was divided into the current time and the time to come, this age and the age to come. So eternal life, from that perspective, is God's life. Very much like what the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, and the life that's part of the rule and reign of God, the life that is to come but also is now. So what's the brush? What are the things that are growing up around him that are keeping Nicodemus from embracing this life? It's trying to fit Jesus into his pre-existing intellectual framework. It's not humbly receiving the knowledge of God and the person of Jesus. He wants it to be just a new teaching, a new idea that he can fit in his framework, but that doesn't work. That's not how we receive Jesus. It's a radical reorientation of our whole lives, body, mind, soul, around the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus. 
So what's the brush that keeps us from this new belief? I think there are many, and I think I've struggled with all of these. And some of them this past week when I prayed through this passage. One of them might be rationalism and intellectualism. A focus on right thinking rather than this humble submission and trust, this Bible kind of belief, not our American kind of belief. Maybe it's autonomy, an arrogant autonomy, where I get to make the call on what truth is. I'm in the jury. I get to see all the evidence. I get to pick it. Maybe for some, though, it's more of just the stresses of life. It's, it's the bills. It's the schedules. It's the marital conflict. It's the parenting issues. It's the questions about the future and where should I go and who should I be in a relationship with and what kind of job should I take that just kind of grows up around us and clouds our perspective of Jesus and the life that he wants to offer us, this eternal life that is offered to us in the present in the person of Jesus. And maybe for some of you, it's tied to this last verse in our passage, in verse 16, which is the most famous probably in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have everlasting life. And for some of you, you might think that it's this exclusivity of Jesus that's the brush that's growing up, that's keeping you from really trusting in him because our culture doesn't like exclusivity. We think that if it's the only way, then that's hateful and bigoted and narrow-minded. But I don't think the problem is exclusivity because we make exclusive claims all the time. We think that there's a certain way to do things and that's the right way. There is right and wrong and many philosophical systems and religions hold those and hold them very dearly. I don't think it's exclusivity. I think it's fear. And I think it's fear that God is not loving, and I think it's that fear that God might actually harm me and not have my good in mind that keeps us from this trust, this kind of humble submission to who Jesus is. And some of you have really good reasons for that, and I know that. But hear these words. Hear these words that God so loved the world. The world, not the trees and the planet, not the people who love him. These are, when John uses the word world, he's talking about the people who are enemies of God. When God so loved the world, the enemies of God, he gave himself. It's self-giving love. And it's not an angry God taking out his punishment on an innocent, loving son. No, it's father and son together participating. The father gives, and he gives his best. He gives himself. The son lays down his life of his own accord. They're working together in harmony, this sacrifice to bring us into the sonship. We get new birth. We get new belief because we live rooted in Jesus, and that's the good news. Let's pray. Father, there are so many things, so many things that are growing up around us. The brush, we can't even get through it. We don't even know sometimes if you're behind it. Lord, would you come today in your power?
Would you cut these down? The things that are keeping us from living into our new birth or even from an initial new birth? Would you carve those out? Would you cast them into a fire to be burned? And would you clear the way for us to see Jesus, to see the wonder of this new birth, to be able to, in this new belief, submit humbly and receive you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.